You are listening to the free abridged edition of episode 46 of the Energy Transition Show. The full interview in this episode was 90 minutes long and quite technically detailed, so we have prepared a special highlights reel for the free version of this episode instead of just using the first portion of the interview as we usually do. We hope that this glimpse of the full range of the show will prompt you to become an annual subscriber for just $5 a month, the price of a pint or a cappuccino, and help us make the show an advertising-free, fully self-sustaining enterprise. This show is entirely listener-supported. We don't have any other backers who pay the bills or who might influence what we say. We answer only to you. So please go to energytransitionshow.com and join the other supporters who make this show possible. Now please enjoy this free sample of episode 46. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 28, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Over the past decade or so, as renewables have grown up, the world's expectations about how much of our demand for electricity they can meet have grown up too. From just a few percent, to cautious optimism that they eventually could provide 20 or 30 percent, to bold pronouncements that they could provide 100 percent of our electricity. Now, with renewables easily providing more than a third of some countries' electricity, as we have reported previously, various nations are aiming for what is now being called deep decarbonization, or meeting all of our energy demands with carbon-free power, including things that we didn't used to hope could be powered by electricity, like transportation and space heating. But, as ever, the devil is in the details. For example, one widely hailed 2015 study on which Mark Jacobson of Stanford University was the primary author claimed that the continental United States could run on renewables alone. In Jacobson's model, all energy is generated using only wind, water, and solar, with various storage technologies providing the balancing services. Conversely, another recent meta-study by Jesse Jenkins from MIT and Samuel Thernstrom from the Energy Innovation Reform Project reviewed some recent papers which attempted to model what the energy mix of a high renewables future might be, including important details like cost, system balancing, dispatching, and seasonal storage, and found that a diverse mix of technologies, including flexible nuclear plants and coal or gas plants equipped with carbon capture and storage, or CCS, technology, would be the best way to give us a deeply decarbonized future. Competing views like these have led to an increasingly sharp debate, not just about which path is best, but also about how soon we need to choose a path, what the actual cost might be, what the risks of inaction or lock-in might be, and whose modeling approach is best. Indeed, Jenkins and Jacobson have had it out on Twitter, with plenty of others, including occasionally yours truly, participating in a long-running debate about our energy future. And although I think those debates have had some value to the energy community in elucidating the important questions, they have also too often devolved into a war between entrenched positions, offering no more intellectual value than the comments section of a TMZ article about Justin Bieber. Fortunately, there are a few analysts who are looking deeply into these questions with an open mind. 
And one of them is our friend Christopher Clack, who you'll remember from episode 29. Chris, along with a large number of co-authors, has just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a very detailed critique of Jacobson's 2015 paper, which is, to my knowledge, the first such detailed critique of it. And so naturally, we had to bring him back on the show to share his findings, over a few pints of IPA, of course, as well as to discuss the Jenkins study, along with a whole question of whether 100% renewables is even the right goal, and what our policy prescriptions ought to be at this point in time. After our long 90-minute interview, I'll touch on some recent news from the nuclear and solar power sectors, plus an item regarding one of my favorite personal storage technologies, ICE. Plain, old, low-tech ICE. But first, let's go deep down the analytical rabbit hole once again with Christopher Clack. All right, go ahead. The one thing that we fundamentally state in the paper is a mistake in the modeling is hydroelectric capacity. So we talked about the capacity factor, which you know we can argue back and forth for days about whether you can increase it or not with right. more efficient turbines. The bit that really struck me was the fact that they increased the capacity in terms of power output of hydro by 13 times the what? current installed capacity of hydro. What? And so <laughs> they claim vehemently that they don't increase the capacity of hydro. But when you look at the numbers and you look at their plots, they output hydroelectric power at 1,300 gigawatts for hour upon hour from their model. And to put it in perspective, 1,300 gigawatts is larger than the entire US electric system today, generating capacity. And they need that to balance their model. So this was a biggie for me. This is one of the reasons why I decided to look more deeply into his work. So the title was looking at the reliability issue for 100% renewables. So it kind of said it on the tin what it was supposed to be doing, mm -hmm. this paper. And essentially what they did was they assumed that there was infinite transmission across the whole United States where electrons could travel wherever they liked for free with no losses. I correct myself, they did put in a multiplier at the end for losses. But essentially, their grid model was one-dimensional, or rather zero-dimensional. And so what I mean by that is they assumed that all the loads, so all the people consuming energy, all the generation, all the storage was at a single point in space. And so there was no modeling of the grid at all. And then at the end, they had some argument about this is the cost that it would be to have that transmission applied. And when I was reading it, I kind of just sat there and said to myself, oh, you know what? I could go to the Department of Transport and say, I've solved your transportation problem. <laughs> I'm just going to assume for you that everyone lives in the same house. Yeah. Everybody works in the same place. They eat, they shop, they do everything in the same place. Right. And it'll only cost you this X million dollars to do the rest of it. And I think I would be somewhat laughed out of the building <laughs> to say that to solve the problem because we all know that the devil's in the detail in terms of you That's know right. certain trunk roads that yeah. difficulties and and all the rest of it and so to state as the title that it's looking at the reliability problem but then not even considering the transmission power flow part of it and there's a whole bunch of other parts i didn't consider but that's the the big one for me because no study does a perfect job on anything and everybody's fallible but that particularly to me from the work that I've been doing before was particularly strong in my mind because it completely changed everything when we included transmission in our model. But yeah, that was the most worrying part when I first started reading it was that they didn't even model 
the transmission when they're talking about reliability. All right. So what about demand flexibility? Now, that's a really key resource that a lot of us are excited about mm-hmm. as part of energy transition, yep. being able to do uh, flexible demand or demand response, as it's often called. What were the issues with the way Jacobson modeled that? So, again, as we get more and more into these, they get more and more technical and weedy. So I'll try and keep it higher level. Oh, that's all right. I'm sure there's at least 10 people that are still listening. I don't know. There's just the two of us, I think. <laughs> I'm sure there's millions of them listening and this will resonate really well with them. So essentially what we found was he allows almost 60 to 80% of the demand to be what's called flexible, quote unquote. But what he then in the model allows to do, I say he, but I mean the team. Uh, I I refer to him because he's a lead author. They basically allowed it to store up for eight hours, essentially. And then after that point, it's not allowed to be stored any longer. It has to be what they call inflexible. So it has to be met. And there's a couple of issues that I can see with that. One is if you go and look at their graphs, you'll see it build and build and build, and then there'll be a sudden drop-off where all this demand has to be met. So again, think of all these hydro plants firing up to serve all this short-term load or all these generators having to send power all at the same time. There's a secondary problem with that was some of the technologies that he's cycling fundamentally can't do it. If you've got an aluminium smelter, you can't turn it off for eight hours. It solidifies and we're done. Right. So there's no real flexibility there other than you know small amounts. Obviously, there is some flexibility. But to assume that 60 to 80% of it is flexible, it's just not realistic. When you start going down past some level, yeah. it becomes harder to do. Well, plus there's a ramping characteristic, yep. right? There's always, Absolutely. It doesn't just all suddenly yes. turn off or on at once. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happens in their plots. You can see it basically drops off several terawatts in a few time steps. Okay, so he's clearly not modeling it at a particularly great level of detail. No, no. So when they model it, once they've done that bunching, they then lump it all together as one thing called flexible demand. Okay. So they do this sort of disaggregation of what they think is flexible from which area and then total amount of energy needed, and they have their huge reduction of about 25% of energy. We don't need that much energy, so we reduce it by 25% because they electrify everything. And then they just lump it into what's called flexible and inflexible demand. And so the inflexible is obviously just looks like a normal load curve, and then the flexible can be whatever it gets turned into. So it's just one number that changes, essentially, throughout the model. So it's not like there's air conditioning changes, this and this and this is one thing. This sounds suspiciously like a reverse engineered flexible demand model. This is not a bottom up. It doesn't appear to be a bottom up model. Okay. It appears to be, this is what the flexible demand is, and it just allows it to shunt it for eight hours. All right. Moving right along. So stepping back a little bit from your critique of Jacobson's work, Let's remember what this is ultimately all about. It's about policy targets and energy transition, right? So first of all, do you think a 100% renewables target is even the right objective? No, but (laughs) I think we've been bullied as a society to have to talk about something that isn't related to carbon in the political scene. I think these RPSs and these goals of 100% renewable, 50% renewables, have been pushed upon us as a sort of synonym for 50% reduction in emissions. 
But we can't say in the political arena, reduce emissions, because half the people will hate us for saying it. But if we say, we'll do renewables and we'll give you jobs and taxes, then hey, that's a good thing. We're still getting fight back from that. And I'm now talking with my sort of scientific hat off and talking more as a personal citizen of trying to have these transitions happen. And I think the goal should be unequivocally remove carbon or better greenhouse gases from our economy by some date and have targets, intermediate targets on the way. And I, quite frankly, am less bothered about what does it. I think everything should be on the table and things that win will win and things that don't win won't win and will move forward as a society. And there will be smart people out there who will invent things that you or I have not heard about or even thought about and it will come along and it will completely change the direction we're going on. But we get to the goal of reducing carbon. That is my fundamental goal. And we shouldn't be dancing around that issue by saying we need 100% renewable targets. Because 100% renewable targets, unfortunately, when you look at the numbers, do cost more and do make it more difficult to control the system overall. Because we will have all this excess capacity or excess generation, which we're going to scramble to do something with. I sometimes call curtailment opportunity, which it is. But you then need another technology to come in and deal with that curtailment and utilize it either electric vehicles or demand response or something else right. to pull in, which is not a bad thing. No. If we can afford to pay for it and do it, the problem becomes is how does that work as a machinery? How does the economy build on that sort of inconsistency of knowledge of what's going to happen? What happens if, you know, we had twenty fifteen again where there was a wind drought and our actual in the US renewable energy output went down even though renewable installations went up? because there just was less resource. Right. How do we deal with that when we've got 100% renewables? Another example is in August this year, solar eclipse is coming across. Okay, this year, we're probably going to deal with it just fine. We're going to have one of the biggest ramps ever seen in Kaiso, in California, when the solar comes back online after it goes away. Right. But now you just push forward to 100% renewables. So let's say 50% is solar. What does that ramp look like? What do we do when the ramp comes? It's harder to get people excited about and organize around. I mean, you can't really imagine like a whole crowd of people marching down Pennsylvania Avenue, waving signs going 80% renewables, right? It doesn't no. quite have the same ring. And I think that's really what's at issue here. It's not, there's an analytical target and then there's an aspirational target. Right. I agree with that to a point, but the problem is that there's a huge backlash if you find out that you've been misled there's a lot of risk here. Yeah, and, but, and but, clearly your analysis shows that this Jacobson paper, which has been widely cited, has some very serious problems. And that creates a very serious problem for those of us that are pushing for renewables. Yeah, but I can see people walking down Pennsylvania Avenue cheering zero greenhouse gases by 2050 at the lowest cost possible. Probably they'd shorten it to zero emissions, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? If you're, I mean, with a big poster board, you yeah, could, yeah, you, you could, could fit, fit that in. Yeah. Yeah. They, probably we could make up some funny acronym that would <laughs> work. But but my point is that I agree. I mean, I credit the paper and uh, Jacobson's other work. I fully respect Jacobson and his team. I think they're great people and scientists. I think they have changed it. The problem is it's disguised as science. Right. This paper, right? It says that it's done something it hasn't done, and I started doing this when I was a scientist before I transitioned to my new job, but I still wanted to see it through because it is science is self-correcting or should be self-correcting. And if someone's wrong, no matter who they are, 
someone can come along and show with evidence and proof that they are wrong and we change direction and we move forward and we evolve as a better society because we know the truth and so for me the reason i say 100 renewables isn't the goal i would like to see is because i think we need to focus people on what's the issue it's not at what the technologies are that are supplying the power it's what they're emitting there was this recent paper by Jesse Jenkins and friends who looked at, well, it was actually Jesse Jenkins from MIT and Samuel Thurstrom from the Energy Innovation Reform Project. Mm -hmm. And their paper was a review of the literature on deep decarbonization, which is, I guess, the new term of art for this largely decarbonized energy system, including things like transportation and space mm -hmm. heating. And they reviewed 30 studies on deep decarbonization published since 2014. And they found that models which are primarily or entirely based on renewable energy deal with the variability and seasonality of wind and solar, either by assuming very large systems or by assuming long duration seasonal energy storage, meaning enough storage to meet US electricity demand for two to four months, using technologies that are unproven at large scale, such as, as we were just talking about this underground thermal energy storage, or producing hydrogen from water using electrolysis or using excess electricity to synthesize natural gas or something else. So these models, also assume a high renewable system would mean that wind and solar are significantly curtailed when production is higher than demand, even with storage transmission and demand response. And so they assume that a long distance transmission grid like the kind you described when you were with us in episode 29 would be required. And all of this, the authors assert, would actually be more challenging to run and costly to build than systems based on what they would call a diverse portfolio of low carbon resources, which is really apparently their euphemistic way of describing a system that includes some kind of nuclear power plus fossil fuel plants equipped with carbon capture and sequestration or CCS technology. So let's break this down. I think the core of the argument is the assertion that we'll need large quantities of seasonal storage if we have a grid mostly powered by renewables. And I suppose that once we get to 80% renewables or whatever, circa 2040 or whenever we get there, if the world stays more or less as it is now, only with more renewable energy, then maybe we would need seasonal storage. And in that case, I suppose we could do a lot with thermal technologies that nobody is bothering with right now because we don't need seasonal storage yet. But these are mega projections well into a future jam-packed with unknown unknowns, to quote Donald Rumsfeld. And we have no clue what kinds of large-scale technologies will be viable decades from now, let alone what they'll cost. So, you know, I don't really see any evidence in the Jenkins paper, actually, that an expansion of nuclear power or a significant penetration of coal or gas plants equipped with CCS, which assumes, mind you, nearly 100% CO2 capture rates, which is far above the capability of CCS technology today, would actually be the only way to meet the expected demand. I mean, sure, it's one way that demand could be met, and the authors of those papers presumably had reasons for modeling it that way. But it's not the only way. And in fact, I have yet to see any model of the future energy system that was based on the technologies that I actually think will be in play. Namely, lots of demand response, lots of load shifting and thermal storage technologies, like using ice to cool buildings, for example, much higher efficiency appliances and better insulated buildings, lots of distributed behind the meter battery storage, widely deployed rooftop solar and larger balancing areas, leveraging large scale transmission systems. Unlike what Jenkins calls the dispatchable base or flex base, again, meaning nuclear and CCS, which don't yet exist at scale, all of the technologies I mentioned just now do exist today at known costs 
and are proven to be scalable. So I don't see any reason to assert that technologies which don't exist, whose costs are not known, will definitely be cheaper and better able to meet the grid's needs several decades from now. I mean, that seems to me an astonishing claim. My point with that is that we always have to constrain our modeling because the infinite possibilities of what the future might be is not tractable to solve. But what we can do is we can limit it and we can say what we're limiting and why we're limiting it, which is what Jacobson did, which is good, apart from the one mistake, which is why I appreciate it. And that's what we did in our Nature Climate Change paper. And you can either take it or leave it. You go, okay, I don't trust your stuff because you've assumed this. And okay, you can find, you can ignore it. But as the body of evidence builds up and you're building these assumptions, you should be able to have a fair and honest discourse of things going forward. And like you say, the cost curves are different. And to illustrate the point, when we did our nature climate change paper, we did the experiments and the runs on the computer modeling, submitted it for publication. By the time it was published, new cost updates had come out and all our low or what should I say optimistic costs for renewables were already beaten by the market. So what we said was low cost estimate for 2030 by 2016 was already below that. And so you should update them. You should redo them. We didn't get to redo it. But the point is that things fluctuate as the markets go forward. But the problem with the modeling and why we need to do modeling is we don't want assets to just die away. We know that there are some assets that might die away, but that is a cost to somebody. Either the consumer, if it's owned by a utility, they're going to tag it onto your bill. But if they go bankrupt or anything, there's lenders that will have lost money and therefore the interest rate that they offer to someone else to build a power plant will go up. So there is some true cost to having to get rid of power plants. But that, again, is not necessarily a bad thing. If it's uneconomic to keep something running, let's just pay the cost to get rid of it and put something else in its place. And we've done recent modeling in Colorado and Wyoming where we show we can get rid of all the coal plants with just wind at 20% lower cost than we pay today, including transmitting the power to those substations. And so we need to have the long-term view deliberately hazy because we don't know what the future is, but we've got to think about it because when we think about renewables, if we go for these high levels, where we build them and where we do place them has an impact later down in the road. But at the same time, you know, we should be deploying it like it's going out of fashion because it's so cheap and we're only a few percent right now and we want it to be like i would love it to be 10 percent wind and solar yeah that'll be a great landmark day we hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the energy transition show the full episode covers much more in order to hear the rest point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, Energy Transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. 
Watts Bar 2, the first nuclear plant in 20 years to go into commercial operation in the U.S., has been shut down not six months after being commissioned and is expected to stay offline at least until the summer. The Tennessee Valley Authority, or TVA, began construction on the plant in 1973, but put it on what's called deferred construction status in 1985, and then ended its efforts to complete the unit a decade later when it was about 80% complete. A decade after that, in 2005, TVA decided to complete the 1.1 gigawatt unit, which finally came online in October 2016 at a cost of $4.7 billion, nearly twice the $2.5 billion estimate given in 2007 when construction finally resumed. TVA opted to refurbish the condenser, which had been installed during the original construction period, but failures in structural steel, the steel plates, and the welds of the new condenser recently failed, causing the loss of the main pump that feeds 140,000 gallons of cooling water a minute into the condenser. The failure occurred as the plant was starting up from another outage in March, which was related to a fault in the feedwater system, and that outage followed another, which was due to a fire in the switchyard transformer. The condenser was designed by Westinghouse, which, you'll recall, recently declared bankruptcy as its nuclear business imploded, and forced Toshiba to take a $6.3 billion write-down and spin off the Westinghouse unit to avoid having it take the whole company down. So if TVA was expecting Westinghouse to stand behind its work at the Watts Bar plant, it shouldn't expect that any longer. Item 2. Southern Company says it will need $3.7 billion in guarantees that Toshiba has posted for its bankrupt Westinghouse Electric Unit in order to finish the Vogel nuclear plant in Georgia. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.